Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 115. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too because you're right here with me. So if you're here for the first time, please make sure you click the like button and subscribe. That really helps. Um, if you're a veteran viewer of the Rattlecast, you know what to do. Please click something to make sure the computer overlords know that you like this show and it's worth sharing to other people. That's the only way things spread. Everything is about reach and algorithms these days on all these platforms. And um, if you share this, it will help a lot. That's all we ask of you. Now, today's guest is Jenny Chi. Uh, she'll be with us in about 15 minutes. Uh, but before we begin, I always like to start with Poets Respond Live. And we have two poems this week. We have a regular poem on Sunday and then a bonus on Tuesday. And Tuesday's poem, or um, I should say today's poem, they have a lot in common, is what I'm trying to say. And um, Sylvie Washriver Stein could not join us today. She's traveling at the moment. But um, I will read this poem for you. And it's about this um, really tough to, uh, difficult story. Um, a woman, let's see, the, I don't have a New York Times subscription, so I can't show it here. But um, the, um, you know, a woman was raped on a train. And, um, you know, according to the police, people watched and did nothing to help. And um, it's sort of a frightening thing that's been happening more and more lately. I've seen a lot of videos, um, you might have too, where, um, you know, people are getting like attacked in the street and, and everybody, instead of just, um, instead of helping, um, people um, take out their phones and record it maybe, or just do nothing. It's a really, I don't know, it's a frightening kind of situation and reminiscent of uh, Kitty Genovese, who um, um, Sylvie uh, Washerverstein mentions in the note here. And let me read you this poem. So this is uh, the poem of the day here, Between Stations. There we go. So Between Stations. And uh, here's the quote from the New York Times. Um, As a woman was being raped while on a train near Philadelphia on Wednesday night, riders watched, failed to intervene, and did not call 911, authorities said. That's a quote from the New York Times. And here's the poem, Between Stations. I moved to the city to find the noise of bodies that would drown out my own. The train takes it so long to come. The train takes so long to come. The train takes so long, and then it comes, the roar in my ears, only an echo of my own breath, and the slap of sewer water lapping in the dark, like blood fills a clean toilet bowl. My first boyfriend worked his day job pumping gas, and night after night he pumped in his sleep, arms working like he was milking the earth. Two men hold up phones like blank, dry eyes, staring me into the plastic, fluorescent seat, squeaking as it pinches my skin and drags the empty flesh of my raw body into the rattle between tunnels. A woman smiles at me from the ad plastered over the window. Her skin has never been clearer. The car slides into the mouth of the enormous snake, swallowing its own tail. No sound escapes a vacuum. I hear my mother at the other end of the telephone. I'm fine, Ma, I tell her in the voice of a little girl. There are so many people here. And that was today's poem, once again, by Sylvie Warshiver-Stein. Um, it's a really haunting poem to think about, uh, Between Stations. And now let's go to um, the second poet of today. And um, it's, once again, uh, Richard Westheimer has a poem on Tuesday that we just loved and we thought we would share it. It's a similar topic um, a little bit. So let's talk to Richard. Hey, Richard, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Boy, that poem was magnificent. Uh, the one that was there today, that was 
Yeah, that was a, just one of those powerful image based. It just kept moving through that poem and you could really feel the, the effect it has on you. Um, yeah, it was a good one. Was. Um, well, um, so do you want to explain what your poem was about? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll kick into it. So I, I was, uh, there was a headline earlier this week that uh, Facebook was going to rename itself. Um, and it had to do with their aspiration to be masters of what is called by some people the metaverse. And it just struck a ton of chords for me, first of all. And this is not really a good thing when you're trying to write a poem. Hating Mark Zuckerberg (laughs) is not sort of like starting off with this idea that I hate this man and what he's done. Um, So I, I didn't know if a poem would come of this, but I was just really sort of taken um, by this coinage, this uh, coinage of a word. And I sort of, I dug deep into like universe. Where did, where did, where did the word universe come from? And, and it actually predates Latin. Hmm. It's, it's, uh, and the word verse um, in some proto-Indo-European means something like turn. And I can just imagine the ancients looking up and thinking, you know, that this turning is all of one thing, uh, which then brought up the David Baum uh, quote, which is at the beginning of my poem. So while I started off angry at Mark Zuckerberg, I ended up angry with myself. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting. I mean, something big is going on with Facebook, really. I think, and, and Facebook is kind of dying, and trying to figure out how to have a new life. You know, so they're. I think one of the plans I think they have is for hoping for. Um, and hoping for intense regulation so that they're the only ones that can meet the regulatory standards and then they'll have to have like a default monopoly. I think that's one of the plans. And then the other is this metaverse idea, which, you know, if you think social media is frightening um, as it is now, as far as the impact it has on kids, like imagine it being everywhere constantly in an entire world you enter and that's so much better than our own. That's scary to think of, especially with young kids yeah, thinking that yeah, they're entering yeah. this world. It, it it well you know young kids and and of course the rest of us yeah. who are accidentally addicted to uh, you know become increasingly uh, lack resistance uh, to this and it's you know the whole notion of taking for me taking this beautiful concept of universe which is one of the oldest words I, I didn't really realize this that we have and give and and co-opting it. So, you know, it's co-opting the language. It's it's like this extension of cyberspace, which co-ops the word space, which has all the these beautiful connotations. Um, so I, I was I was pretty sort of just just saddened by by this. And, you know, it's not new. We know this is coming. We know that, you know, there are all these things with avatars, but it it. It, it was it was pretty stunning, and like all of like these poet respond opportunities, po- you know, po- headlines are like metaphor engines. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they really are. Yeah. They're just like you know you read a headline, and all of a sudden you have you have the opportunity for metaphor, and this this one worked the same way. Yeah. Well, why don't you go ahead and read it into the metaverse? I'll put it okay. up on screen. Okay. Let me grab it here. Whoops. Um, sorry. No problem. Into the metaverse. Epigraphs. 
the entire universe must be regarded as a single, indivisible unit, undivided, uh, undivided wholeness of flowing motion. And that's David Bohm, who's a quantum physicist. And then Mark Zuckerberg, the metaverse presence is this feeling that you're really there. The moon illusion looms large tonight, is red and extended, rising full in the east. It chases Jupiter with its string of pearl moons along the ecliptic. And I can't help but note my standing on this spinning sphere here slung around a yellow star spiraling in a mandela of a hundred thousand million other stars. I double helix my way through space on this small, small place, swept up in this small, small part of a universe I can only grasp with my eyes closed. I go inside where it is too bright to see anything but things. There I find the kitchen table. On it, a vase of late-cut daisies, a scattering of fall-tinged maple leaves brought in from the yard, a pot of greens haloing steam up to an incandescent bulb humming with its 60 hertz aum. Deb sits across with that green flannel shirt so soft to touch, unbuttoned too down at the top. She peers up, her eyes flash like candlelight, and we set to our meal. We eat to the clink of fork and bowl and sighs in a few satisfied words and turn to our screens, entranced by pixels plentiful as stars, and gaze into the metaverse, an infinite rabbit warren of Cheshire cats and mad-hatted murderers of time, where it's always high tea, so long as I get my order in by nine. I am Alice, knocked about by algorithm, locked into lines of code, processed and stored in a database for future use. There's no way to shake loose to get back to the world of being with these savor, with those savory greens, that unbuttoned blouse, and a moon fully rising into a wholeness of everything, which might, if I keep scrolling, show up in my feed. Yeah, another excellent poem, Richard. I think that's three Poet Respond poems now. I'm doing one a week over the last couple of years. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. And just, that's a, a really wonderful. I mean, the images stand out like they always do. And then, you know, you're wondering if it, what's going to happen at the end. And then it's a great ending, too. So thanks for sharing that. That'll be Tuesday's poem. Oh, th thanks. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to get to think about headlines every week as metaphors. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always my pleasure. I'm so glad we always have good poems ready to go. And uh, hopefully, I don't know if we'll see you later, maybe for uh, the prop poem too. But if we do, yeah, I'll see I, you then. I did send one in. I'll see you then. Okay, cool. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that was Richard Westheimer with Tuesday's poem, which will be Into the Metaverse. And um, now we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to call up today's guest, Jenny Chi. And I will be right back in just a moment. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, 15 seconds or so. Here we go. back 
Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Jenny Chi. Jenny is the author of a brand new book, uh, Focal Point, which just came out, winner of the 2020 Steel Toe Books Award. Uh, her essays and poems have been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Tin House, Rattle and Elsewhere, and she has received fellowships and support from Tin House, Omni Dawn, Kearney Street Workshop, and the San Francisco Widers Grotto. Uh, born in Pennsylvania to Chinese immigrants, she grew up in, mostly in Las Vegas and Nashville, and now lives in San Francisco. She completed her PhD in biomedical science, cancer biology, from UCSF, where she studied novel drug candidates and preclinical models of pancreatic um, neuroendocrine tumors. She currently works with life science and biopharma groups as a competitive intelligence manager with a focus on ovarian cancer. And uh, here she is, Jenny Chi. Hey, Jenny, how are you doing today? Hi, Tim. Uh, I'm good. Really glad to be here. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's so glad you could join us. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. It's so great to see you. You're one of those poets that I kept being like, hey, I wonder if Jenny has a book yet. And then she doesn't. And then now you do. So um, do you want to kick us out um, to start with uh, just reading a poem from the book? Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, sure. I can start by reading the very first poem in the book, which I think is a good intro. Um, So it's just on page one. And um, the just a quick note that the title of this poem is actually the definition of a focal point in optics. Um, So this is point at which parallel waves converge and from which diverge. Researcher, prevention won't save my life, tweets a patient with metastatic cancer. I'm reminded of my mother. Why don't you want to study cancer when I expressed interest in HIV? In the hospital, call from a professor. My mother clapping once, then silence. The roommate 30 years her senior, who called my voice lovely, who called my mother lucky, whom I resented because she outlived my mother. Nights at a microscope in a dark room where the lights turn off after 10, sitting too still turning a knob just so to focus on the right field of cells. The 800 mice I've sacrificed this year, injecting cancer, harsh medicine into their soft, warm bodies, hating them for biting me, but understanding, stroking their white fur in apology, covering cages with paper so they can't watch their sisters die. But I can. And I see my mother in those graying eyes, eyes I refuse to donate because how would she see? And I think how cruelly futile all this erratically focused empathy, how brutal to learn why I couldn't save what I couldn't save. Yeah, and that was um, sort of the title poem, point at which parallel waves converge and from which um, diverge, which is the definition of focal point, which... Um, this book with a beautiful cover. I love this cover. Um, and so I, I was surprised um, reading this book. I didn't know what the content would be. Um, and it, a very moving poem um, or, or just book of poems. Mostly it feels about about coming to terms with your mother's death. And um, when did you know that that's what you, your book was about? Like, did you know that? Because they feel each poem. At one point you mentioned um, writing letters uh, to your mother for 100 days after she died and then burning them. 
And and the 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 poems in this book feel like letters to your mother almost too. They're very that personal like direct address thing. Um, how how like like when did you realize that what you were doing and how conscious was it that that that's what your book was going to be about? Mm, that's a great question, Tim. And to be honest, it wasn't until the very end. I think I didn't actually set out to write a book uh, when I started writing these poems. Um, I wrote most of this when I was actually getting my PhD at UCSF. And for those who don't know, um, UCSF is like an all health sciences, all grad level uh, institution. And so I didn't have quite the balance of disciplines that I had in college and previously. And I didn't have much of an outlet for my grief. Um, So I lost my mother just a few months before I started that program. And so after about a year of just like not being able to write anything, I started to uh, sort of compulsively write, just like write poems that came came pouring out of me. And I was very fortunate in that um, I found my way to an informal writing workshop at UCSF that's run by one of the physicians just out of his office. And so I went to this workshop like every Monday, um, like in between experiments. And after like four or five years, I had written probably hundreds of poems. And one day, um, this physician, David Watts, he turned to me and he's like, so where's your book? And I hadn't really thought that hard about um, turning all these poems into a book until that point. I had been slowly getting more serious about like my writing career, um, but I was also doing like science journalism and writing essays uh, and kind of thinking of those as more like practical ways of building my love of writing into my life. Um, and I don't know, from, from then on, I started putting everything into a collection. Um, and that was probably around 2016 when I started doing that. And a few years later, here we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that, that you were able to put the book together and get it out. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about how you, you know, how you got into the, the sciences and then, and then in, in writing too? Um, and not many people do both. So how is it that you ended up doing both science and creative writing? Yeah. Um, I was very excited to learn that we sort of have this in common the other day. Um, but I, I mean, I'm the only child of immigrants from China who like lived through the cultural revolution. And so I think from a young age, I was, even though I was very artistic and creative, there was a lot of pressure on me to go into something that was practical. And um, I don't know, for me that ended up being STEM. Uh, my my mom actually really wanted me to be a physician. Um, and I was pre-med like almost all through college. And I think like her mindset as someone who lost a lot in the cultural revolution, um, was basically, well, if you become a doctor, um, not the useless kind that I currently am, but like, if you become a physician, um, like you will always 
have food to eat, people will always give you a job and need you. And even if you become like an enemy of the state, they can't kill all of you. They'll still need you. <laughs> and so I feel like that was basically her mindset. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure. I did grow to um, like science over time um, I because I think there's a lot that science has in common with poetry. It's just like you get really curious about things and you explore these curiosities, particularly research. Um, and that was what drew me to research versus medical school initially. Um, so that was kind of long winded way of yeah. describing how I got into yeah, science. Yeah, that was perfect. That's how I, I feel about it too. It feels to me like the thing that made me love science is the same thing that made me love poetry, which is just poetry is a tool of exploration, just like the scientific method is. And, you know, you don't, you can't prove things in the same way, but you get to these leaps of understanding and, and it's a, it's a tool for that use. You know, I always think about the way, um, you know, poems are like mantras and, and mantra is a mind tool. And these are mind tools that are, that are, we're exploring, we're, we're like microscopes into our own being and into human existence. And that's what I love about this. And, and so it's cool to hear that you're drawn for the same reasons to both, both sides of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's do another poem. What do you want to do next? Um, are there any that you would like me to read? Um, it's up to you. I didn't really highlight any. Um, I didn't, you know, make any notes but um okay whatever you'd like is good let's just walk through some of the poems okay um maybe i will read um the biology lesson poems uh so i have a series of four poems that are biology lesson one two three four um and they are interspersed uh with other scenes from my non-biology life. Um, and I s formatted it that way sort of as a poetic lab notebook. Hmm. Um, okay, so I'm trying to find the page. This so, one's 24. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Biology lesson one. Cells need touch. Isolated cells wither, float away in a blood-red sea. And the second one is 29. Okay. Biology lesson two. Too much touch stifles. Even the toughest cells die, wanting room to breathe. Um, the next one is 33. Biology lesson three, heart cells beat spontaneously in vitro, given proper nourishment. The last one is 35. Biology lesson four, fed the right factors, cells can become anything, molecular inspiration. And those are the biology lessons from Focal Point, which I love the the way the book is constructed like that. Um, you know, they, they work as uh, like little inter interludes as you move through the poems. Like they're sort of, uh, 
I don't know. I really did get the sense, actually, that you mentioned it, of like writing notes in a journal, like like all the life is swirling around in the poems. And then I imagine somebody writing in a notebook, you know, and, and you know, briefly while all the stuff swirled around emotionally. Uh, so I thought that worked really well. And the way they're interspersed through the book works really well, too, for for the the pacing of it. Um, how, how much did you like think about putting the book together like that? Like, was it like a science experiment where you like have, you know, many iterations and an A-B test among your friends and things like that? I can imagine <laughs> that yeah, you might do it. Um, thank you. Uh, it was a bit of an experiment, though I did not do A-B testing, I'm afraid. I, I like felt bad asking people to read the entire <laughs> thing, you know. Um, but I did uh, go through maybe like four-ish iterations of um, this book. And I I think in the first few, I didn't know what to do with those poems. And I kind of played around with all of it being one poem and then separating them into the four smaller poems that they are now. Um, and I think in my last iteration, of reworking the manuscript, I, I realized finally that my science life really did bleed into my writing a lot more than I used to think. Like, I don't know, I spent most of grad school thinking that those lives were so separate, but of course they were not because, I mean, especially like in a PhD program, you're dedicating so much time and like spending so much of, um, like your thoughts on your work and I kind of felt the same way about poetry it was like I would do some I would like listen to podcasts a lot like while I was doing experiments because some of that can just after you plan it out some of it can be kind of mundane um and you don't have to think too hard about what you're doing and like sometimes I would like would be listening to a podcast and it would like trigger a poem or in the case of these biology lesson poems like I would just be learning how to do cell culture like how to grow cells in a dish and think of these really cool connections between cell behavior and like human behavior um so yeah it, it they really ended up bleeding into each other more than I realized yeah, well, that's the cool thing about the book, too, is that you get so much of that stuff throughout it, uh, which is just, just great, like, grist for poems. You know, there's so many, I mean, and, and it's it's stuff that's that's unique to what you're writing, because how many poems, you know, how many poems in the world exist about telomeres, you know? I mean, maybe <laughs> two, <laughs> if someone else wrote one. Um, not many. And and it just gives, it, there's this, like, whole different flavor to the whole book that, that runs throughout. And, and it, it's a it's a use, um, you know, metaphors come from there so many times throughout the book. And um, it just seems like a great thing to be, to have this whole, like, sort of body of knowledge on one side that you can always be drawing from as a writer. Yeah, thank you. I have I have come to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by come to? You, di- you didn't at first? Did you think it held you back or something? I think... Um, not so much that, but I, I often felt like I was just pulled in different directions. And I think there's this false dichotomy that's like perpetuated by, I don't even know who, by like pop culture maybe. And like that, like science and, uh, the arts are at odds with each other and just like, I don't know, diametrically opposed somehow. 
And I really kind of bought into that as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always felt so conflicted. Did you feel, as a kid, did you feel yourself an artistic person? Or they had the whole right brain, left brain thing, which people believed in, in the way. Like, I'm a huge fan of Ian McGilchrist and and his newer research on that. Um, But the way that we thought of it is like, one's artistic and one's, you know, and we have different learning styles. And if you're artistic, you're right, right brain, and then you're not... Um, and it just, and that's not true at all. Cause we all <laughs> use both our brains. There's no, um, there's no, there's no people who only use half their brains, but, um, although it might seem like that sometimes, but, um, but which, which way did you feel? Um, did you feel like a science, like, like what you were, as you were a kid when you were little, you mentioned, did you feel like an artistic kid or did you feel like both at the same time, even back then? I definitely felt like an artist, more of an artistic kid. Um, honestly, part of Part of the reason I went into science, aside from what I described earlier, was weird gendered stuff around, like, left brain versus right brain. Like, those messages that you get, like, oh, like, males are more into science and, yeah, that sort of thing. And I was like, no, that's crap. I'm going to do science and prove all of you wrong, basically. (laughs) So, Uh So I think I felt more artsy. But but I definitely felt like I was kind of both. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious how you felt about this, like growing up. And um, doing I science. felt like a sciencey kind of kid. I didn't feel very art. I, I didn't like art class. I, my two least favorite classes were art and English, actually. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, I didn't like either of those. I liked every other. I liked all the science and math and engineering and and gym class if I had a list it would be and now I have to do all the stuff that I was my whole I don't know how I ended up doing what I'm doing now it's really strange to me but um but yeah I felt that way and then just it was just um writing poetry by accident that let me realize that hey there's like a discovery like it was almost like discovering like that ghosts exist or something and then you're like hey like there's a world here that I was completely not assuming was real and um the the power of creativity it's just an amazing thing. And it's an amazing on like a, I mean, you can think of it through like a left brain perspective, even that it's just, it, it's, it's a creative force that like undergirds all of civilization. It's amazing. And so, and I think it's underappreciated kind of in our more materialistic society or whatever. So I just always, once I did that, that was like my junior year of high school. I, I, we just had an assignment where it was like, get some extra credit by writing a poem every week. And I was like, oh, well, I'll get 140% for my grade. That'll be fun. And so, and then I just was writing a poem every week and just realizing, hey, there's like cool things here that I didn't know that I knew or like, well, like where did that come from? And that experience was just, so it was just something on the side that I like thought of as fun. And, um, and then I ended up here weirdly, but um, <laughs> that's, the, that's history. That's awesome. Oh. Yeah. Well, let's hear another poem. What do you want to do next? Hmm. Do you want to do the Telomere's poem? <laughs> sure, since you mentioned it. I think that's it. earlier in the book, right? It is. Yeah. Um, it 12. is page 12. Yeah. All right. Telomere's and a 2 a.m. love poem. These are the only kind I'll write you. When I should be reading about telomeres, how they guard the ends of chromosomes and wane with every breath we take, leaving fragments of ourselves behind as our cells grow and divide and become ever more vulnerable as we grow older. I have the sudden brilliant thought that the chromosomes in our heart cells 
must have the shortest telomeres of all. And I think how I can only admit that I might tolerate slash like slash love you when my science becomes this bleary-eyed, delirious brain mush. These nights, I look at you sleeping and want to press my lips to your forehead, tug a corner of the sheet from beneath your arm, tuck myself in its place. Come morning, you'll be just a heavy arm slung across my stomach, too warm body curled around my spine. But now I think mad thoughts, like how maybe you could be an exception and how maybe I could do this every night and how maybe we could let our telomeres shorten together. There you go. And that was telomeres at, um, and a 2 a.m. love poem um, from Focal Point. And it's telomeres, not telomeres. See, that's the difference between you and me. You've actually heard words like that said out loud. And I've only read them occasionally in books, I think. Um, I think you can say it either way. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure, like, the British version would be telomeres, so you're just being fancier. <laughs> okay, well, uh, it sounded great when you said it that way. Um, so, yeah, just, I mean, that's a great example of the way that the science comes in. Because, I mean, telomeres make such a great metaphor. Um, and I don't know if it was, if people needed more of an explanation for what those are, but those are the sort of, the, they, they tell a cell how many times it can divide before it, it has to stop. And, and that's a prevention against cancer, basically. And so the... The heart tissue, um, because if there were a tumor in your heart, you'd be dead. So the, the, the heart tissue has to have very short telomeres to make sure um, um, you, don't, you don't have a higher chance of cancer, but it means you can't fix yourself as much, which is why you have scarring of the heart and um, it lasts your whole life. And so it's just a great metaphor for a love poem, though. And, and to bring that in is just so cool in a book of poems, I think. Thank you. Thanks. Um, let's see. So... So what is like your, your drive to, to become a writer? Um, you know, like, like what drives you forward? That's one thing I'm, I always wonder about, you know, for myself too, like, why do we do what we do? Like, why do we make poems and why do we do anything that we do? Like, why do we do, why do you do, why do you do the research that you do? Like, what are you hoping to, what do you get from poetry? Um, you know, what is it that compels you to, to be a part of this process? That's such a good question. Um, and honestly, one that I ask myself sometimes, <laughs> um, I feel like I, I can't not do poetry. I've often tried to talk myself out of it. Honestly, I'm like, it's such a like difficult and sometimes disheartening path. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you're constantly hearing from people about how no one re reads poetry. Uh, so I've definitely tried to talk myself out of it, but I can't not do it. I love poetry. And I, I have some ever since I was a kid. Um, and I think, I think in times of um, like emotional distress, uh, I, I mean, in my case, particularly just after my mother passed and I felt such strong grief that I didn't know what to do with. Um, it was really the only thing I had. Um, and, and for me, 
I was I was pretty young. I was only 19 when my mom passed. And so I didn't really know people like me. And it was only through poetry and literature that I could see experiences that felt sort of similar and not feel so isolated. Hmm. Would, so, you, would you say you write, you know, for an audience or do you write for yourself and then just happen to share it with an audience? Um, I would say most of this book, definitely I write more for myself mm -hmm. and then I happened to share it with an audience. Um, and I guess for the most part, I think, yeah, I mostly write for myself or for like the younger version of myself that like needed to read something mm -hmm. like this. I feel yeah. like a lot of people say that, but, but I also feel like that really resonates when I hear other people say it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing I was wondering too, as we were talking was, um, what do your like colleagues think about the poetry? Do they read your books and the, do they like, like, what are they, um, <laughs> do, do, do you show, share it with them and, and what do they think or if so? Um, hmm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I de they definitely know, um, like, I, I told most of my lab members about the book, um, though I waited until, like, the absolute last minute to do so. Um, I, I did have, like, a friend in lab who I asked to read the entire manuscript before it was finalized um, to sort of get a perspective from a non-poet. Mm -hmm. um, and... I mean, she was very, like, kind in her remarks about it. And, like, he told me places where she was a little bit confused. Um, and that was, like, a really helpful perspective. Um, but that was the most in terms of comments that I've gotten from, like, a scientific colleague. Um, I did tell my current workplace about it as well because I knew I was going to be doing events and like, so my schedule might be like a little bit wonky and I'm fortunate that my job is fairly flexible. So they're okay with that. Um, but I don't know, we haven't really talked about it too much beyond that. And I, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just don't want like the people who know me, uh, in certain capacities to, say too much <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's just so interesting because it's it, it really feels like two worlds there's like a poetry world of, of this little niche of people who appreciate it which i don't know what percentage of the population it is and you know it, it's a huge world and so that's hundreds of thousands of people but um but it's a, only a small percentage and and then the rest of the world exists in a separate place you know and so talking to people outside i i wish there would be more of a bridge but I, I don't know how to make the bridge do you do you have any insights into that like like how do you think about your audience being mostly poets like is, is that is that something that you try to avoid or you don't think about or um do you try to break through that barrier to reach a bigger audiences um you know, like we published a bunch of chapbooks and um, the only one that seems to, there are a couple that seem to push through because they're about topics that really mm. work. So like the plum, a plumber's guide to light. Um, a lot of people like were buying that just for friends who were plumbers or had been retired plumbers and things like that. Um, or just people who worked blue collar jobs. And then, um, 
um, the, the Tom Hunley book um, about his autistic son um, mm-hmm. sort of was being shared a lot in, in the, um, you know, autistic, uh, you know, parents of children with autism kind of community. So you can sort of topically move into like a broader space and then maybe get those people to appreciate poetry when they wouldn't have, you know, read it since high school. I don't know. What do you think about, about those, the way those audiences are like bifurcated and, and, and it's really hard to bridge that gap. What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, that's a, that's such a great question. And I agree. It does seem hard. And I, I do think that those sorts of like sort of specialized topics can bring additional people in like definitely a lot more a lot of scientists have bought my book because mm-hmm. they know me uh, and for no other reason, not because they normally like poetry. And I have so many friends who aren't really poets. And I think, um, and, and a lot of my, uh, my classmates from UCSF who have read this will tell me like, oh, my favorite poems are like, yeah, the biology lesson poems mm-hmm. or things like that. And so I think that definitely can help. And, and honestly, that helped me too when I was in grad school, uh, writing poems, trying to be a scientist, not really knowing what my identity was. Like I, um, read poems by Lucille Lang Day, who writes a lot about science. And even though she, um, was not necessarily a scientist in the same way that I was, um, I think she does do science education now, um, and has like a pretty extensive background. But that almost gave me permission to sort of meld these worlds. And so I think that is helpful to see that sort of representation. Mm-hmm. Um, I I also think part of it is just how we teach poetry in schools, right? Like, I never read any living poets in K through 12. Um, and that's why I really love like the Rattles Young Poets Anthology and things like that, because it does introduce people to poetry earlier. Um, though I feel like then the, the access to things mm-hmm. like that is still very, um, very different based on where you are and what school you're going to. Uh, and I think that sort of thing is helpful because like reading living poets makes poetry so much more accessible to most people than reading, I don't know, William Blake. And I say that as someone who actually did love William Blake as a kid, mm-hmm. but, but most people probably didn't. Um, and so that's another thing. Um, and, and I also think, not to like drag this on too much, but I also think, I don't know, poetry has had a bit of a resurgence in the last few years Mm -hmm. hasn't it don't you feel well there's a problem with it though and that we were you know we were talking about um you know poetry is exploration and it feels Mm -hmm. to me like the the general public when they appreciate poetry are appreciate more of a from a communication and expression sort of place Mm -hmm. than the place that like at least draws me to poetry and and into what um, you know what what poets are publishing basically we're we're searching yeah. for creating something new and and that's like the drive behind this poetry community that we just have mm-hmm. right but then if i talk to somebody who it's just even if like a like a painter and they do a different kind of art they seem to expect poems to be a sort of a like a painting like i wanted to paint this and then i painted this with words that that's kind of the mm-hmm. concept 
instead of like the the scientific tool as I think about it. And so so there's always this yeah. weird this weird thing where like even when it's appreciated, it's not what I care about, <laughs> which is a strange thing to say because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put anything down or say that it people shouldn't enjoy it for that reason, for different reasons than me, because it's a big world and everybody's different and all sorts of things. But it's, um, I don't know, there's something there that it, there's a, a thing that doesn't really overlap, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I sort of know what you mean, but at the same time, I feel like that can still be an introduction to poetry mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Um, like I am sort of thinking of, um, I mean, there was the inauguration poem mm-hmm. yeah. that drew so many people into poetry. And while that poem specifically was not necessarily, um, I guess, like stylistically, like something that you would publish in Rattle or even like other like other poems that Amanda Gorman has written um, that are maybe more academic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that made a lot of people think oh like poetry is kind of cool and like a lot of people are also becoming more familiar with like instagram poetry Mm -hmm. you know rattle did like an instagram poetry issue a while back and that also i think there feels like there's a bit of a division between that and like what a lot of um poets might prefer um but it it's still makes it mm-hmm. start to be accessible. Yeah, I wonder. I'm really curious to see, because I know Amanda Gorman has a bunch of books, like, coming, you know? And I've read the thing. It's really fascinating, her as an example, because the because um, she has some brilliant poems um, that are just published other places that are, like, great. And then the inaugural poem was that kind of, you know, political speech with sort of a cadence of, you know, line breaks and things like that, which is what people are drawn to. And I wonder what people are going to see when they see her, what I would call real poems, you know? Um, and, and I wonder if they will, um, you know, start to appreciate those because they have that, like, stepping stone across the sort of divide. And maybe that's going to work that way or maybe not. I don't know. I'm still, maybe it's just still up in the air as a question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And I... I don't know, part of me wonders, like, how much that even matters as long as, like, some, as long as people are accessing some of it Mm -hmm. um, and accessing something that they connect with and that can maybe make them think about things in a different way. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I think about this a lot, too. Yeah, it's Um, just something, I I don't know what to think about it either. I mean, I just kind of go back and forth about it. But that's sort of a side tangent. Let's let's go back to the book and read read another poem. What what do you want to read next? Um... Okay. And I should say while you look that if anybody has any questions for Jenny, I'm monitoring Facebook and YouTube. So ask any questions there and I will pass them along. So, um, okay. but, but let's hear a poem first. Or if anyone wants to request a poem. Oh, yeah. Or request a poem. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, but I think I will read uh, Connection on page 64, which sort of relates to what we're talking about. Well, sort of relates more to the... Um, to the poem before I signed on, actually. Connection. In a dream, I hear you. Have you called your grandma? Are you eating? 
Your pixelated face remains contorted mid-sentence, the rest lost to another space. No chance for me to answer fully or finally ask how you are doing. Cremation night, I called you. The only number I knew by heart. You recorded no message. Plastic clock sleeps in kitchen drawer clutter. Batteries five years dead. The alarm echoes against hard white tiles. Too late, I ask after you. Are you there? And that was Connection from uh, Focal Point. Um, I, I do love, I love the title and the artwork. Um, can you explain a little bit about, about why you chose that as the title of all the different possibilities? And then, and then where did you find the artwork too? I, I didn't look at who um, the artwork was by, but, um, mm. but, but how did the book come together in that way? Um, great question. Yeah. So I'll start with the title. Uh, so focal point actually started out as the title of that first poem. Um, and I always knew that that poem was pretty central to the collection and was just like a very important poem for me. Um, and at some point I realized that the reason for this is because this uh, first poem sort of delves into all of the uh, themes that the entire collection as a whole is exploring, um, which is like the ways in which we focus on like our pain um, in these specific sort of self-centered ways. Um, and I think once I came to realize uh, how, how central that was, um, I sort of made the title change. Um, the, the original title actually uh, was I Will Be Somewhere Else Yesterday. Mm which uh, came from a poem that's not even in the book anymore. And I, and I think the other reason I made that change was as I put this book together um, and like reordered it over the course of a few years, so much was changing in the world around me. I mentioned that I started putting this together in 2016, I, I think shortly before the election probably. Um, and so like over the next four years, I've felt the ground shifting beneath our feet and I was also coming to a different uh, place in my grief and coming to a place where while so much of this book still is kind of focused on like the grief for my mother, I was able to become more expansive, I guess, and consider the many communal griefs that really face all of us. Um, and so I, I wanted this to be less looking towards the past, I guess, than mm -hmm. that initial title. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I just think it's a great title. And um, I don't know. Um, 
and so where did the cover come from? Is I think I just looked it up, and that's your own artwork, right? You took that photograph. Uh, yes. So I took this uh, photograph uh, in Mammoth Lakes, California, uh, um, mm -hmm. just at sunset. There are some great sunsets there, and uh, the design was then done by uh, Hillary Steinberg, who is a very good friend of mine from middle school. Oh wow. Um, yeah, and she is currently a designer at uh, the ASPBS and, like, does some freelance work if anyone needs a cover. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was actually really special because I am not friends with, like, too many people from childhood anymore. And she's one of so few people in my life who, like, actually knew my mother and, like, had dinner with her. And so I'm, I'm really glad things came together that way. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, the other thing that... I noticed it's just you have done a great job with marketing and just promoting this book. It seems like you're all over the place. Like I open things and there's focal point again. <laughs> um, do you have any, you know, it's the first time you've gone through it. Um, do you have any just advice on that? Like how did you manage to sort of pull together a marketing? Cause you know, with a press, I mean, a small press like steel toe books, they do as much as they can, but it's not much. It's mostly on the author. And so I, I'm wondering if you sort of, uh, you know, came came at it from a scientific perspective and like, <laughs> like, you know, figured out where, you know, the most leverage points were and things like that. Um, did, did you, what have you done for marketing? Oh, uh, thank you so much. Um, I often have felt overwhelmed. So this is gratifying to hear. Um, I, well, I had to give a huge shout out to like other people who are debuting around the same time. Um, like in particular, one of my friends, Susan Nguyen, the author of Dear Diaspora, uh, she debuted September 1st. So I've gotten just like so much inspo from her because she's like doing everything like a month and a half before me. Um, and I'm just like, there are tons of people who I sort of have gotten inspiration from. Um, also, uh, I did like hire a publicist and that has been a huge help. I don't think there's, I felt really weird about this at first. Um, I think just being like a child of immigrants who like is used to doing everything always. Um, but that has been a huge help. Uh, cause like work has actually been just very busy during this time too. And mm -hmm. I don't know how I could have like gotten it together enough to like reach out to reviewers um, and like put together all these events without like the help of other people. Um, so I guess really all of this is just a pitch for community. Yeah, yeah, in, that's great. In all of its forms. <laughs> well, um, I want to make sure we get to at least two more poems. So let's do another poem and then we'll, we'll keep going after that. Okay. Um, sounds good. I will. Uh, maybe let's do uh, postcards from the living on page 36. Okay. Postcards from the living. I light incense on the stovetop, trail cinders through an empty house. I've decided to believe in the power of ashes. Here I am, buying fruit, mending torn shirts, brushing teeth in cramped bathrooms, living someplace new. Wish you were here, 
I sprinkle sandalwood dust on the ribbon for my first 5K, the token for my first solo trip. Milestones so small and unremarkable, only you could understand and be proud. Remember world history class, how I translated lectures to you each night, partly to practice, partly to keep you with me. Every day there's so much new I want to show you, like the spongy tang of injera, pork belly banh mi melting like butter on the tongue. All these places I have traveled without you, so I can forget how without you I am. Remember when I was 10 and hateful, trying too hard to be cool, how in a rare moment you said, all you wanted was for me to love my life, my only life, this life you started. Here, look how the clouds blush so fiercely, the stark blue winter so cold and bright. That was postcards from the living from Focal Point. Um, one thing, I don't know, I, I kind of hate asking the question about um, how your family reacts to the book, but reading this book kind of for the first time, I don't know why, but the thought kept occurring to me how it would feel to read my daughter's poetry. Um, in the, you know, because you both, both your, you and your father, went through such a difficult event of your mother's death. And then having that insight into like what's in your mind, I think it seems to me like it never really occurred to me how precious it would feel to have a sort of insight into my daughter's mm -hmm. mind or something as we went through a difficult time like that. Um, has your family responded to the book in any way or has your dad read it? How is, how is that? Um, to be honest, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, I gave my dad a copy of the book, but I didn't expect him to read it. Um, and I mean, there's also a bit of a language barrier. Uh, so I don't know. Hmm. That's the short answer is I just don't know. Yeah. Well, there was a, who was it? Somebody had guessed a couple of weeks ago, um, said that they have a rule that you can read all my poems, but we can't talk about them ever. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was a great rule. Yeah. Yeah. So they can have, you know, know what's there, but, uh, but we won't talk about it. And I, I kind of like that idea. I think that was a... A good way to do it. Um, um, do you want to? We haven't talked a little about about craft and how you you know come about your writing. Um, do you have any like what's your process like? How often do you write? Um, and and how how much do you revise the poems as they go? Like how many of the you know poems that end up in a book are published based on how many you draft out? Like what what is your writing process like? And how do you find time to write too? Is a you know having a full time job in the sciences? Um. All great questions, all things I ask myself. Um, I, I think I write kind of sporadically, to be honest. Sometimes I hear about writers with like really rigorous routines and rituals around writing, and I am just in awe. Mm -hmm. I wish I could tell you I was one of those people, but I'm really not. <laughs> Especially like, I guess in this uh, past year um, leading up to the publication of this book, I think there's been like so much uh, admin stuff and like the marketing and all of that is just such a different brain space. Um, so it's, it's been a little challenging, but I think I go through 
periods of being very prolific, I guess. Um, and writing like maybe multiple poems a day or multiple drafts or not a day, a week, sorry, not that prolific. Um, and, uh, in the, usually I will, uh, like every year try to do like writing and reading challenges. I really, I don't know. I, I respond well to like having deadlines and like pretty challenge driven. I want to say Kelly Grace Thomas has said something to that effect too, um, with like 30 day challenges and I am exactly the same way. Um, so every year in April for national poetry month, I will usually do like a syllabics challenge where every single day I, try to just like force myself to sit down and write. I give myself a very arbitrary like number of syllables to shoot for in each line or like an arbitrary form um, and just try to write something short. And usually it's like an observation from the day or like responding to a headline, something like that. I think actually all of the biology lessons poems and all of the shorter poems in this book came from that exercise mm -hmm. um so that helps get the juices flowing i guess um and I yeah something specific here um richard westheimer mentions um the, the ending of that last poem he says such a great subtle landing and um how do you how do you know how to end a poem because um, you do have good endings on your poems and they're not too over the top, which is the, you know, they're not too like a bam ending. They are kind of subtle in the way that, that you work. How do you, how do you know where the ending is? Are you like feeling for it? Like it, at some point earlier in the poem, do you know like what you're writing toward? Um, mm. do, you, do you have a th any thoughts about how you end poems? Oh, thank you. Um, I think I do overwrite a lot actually. And then I have to edit that down in revision um, like maybe half of the time, like once in a while, I might start with an image that then becomes the ending. Like I, I start writing from that point and then I end up flipping the poem around. Like I think, um, one of my poems towards the end is like that, um, and, and sometimes it, Sometimes, maybe like a quarter of the time, I write to the correct ending, and it's just because, <laughs> like, that is all I had to say about it. Yeah. Um, well, let's do. Do you have? Do you want to do two more poems? Sure. Okay, so let's do one poem, and then I'll take. There's some questions that just came in from the audience, and then we'll do a last poem after that. Okay, sounds good. I will read Habits, which is on page 53. Okay. Habits. My fingers haven't touched ivory in years, but they still remember the first measures of fur release, butterscotch jewels in a neighbor's parlor, adagio, fortissimo, lamentando, encoded in slender muscle fibers, tugging on tiny ivory bones, building memories with each repetition. Brain cells, like muscles, build connections with repeated stimulation, letting memories scratch across until they live in the grooves. The more you remember, the deeper the scratches, 
the more you remember until remembering is habit, like breathing or tying a butterfly knot in the dark. Darkness, too, is a habit, ruminating on sorrow until sorrow is easy as breathing, easier. And that was Habits from Focal Point. Um, maybe along the lines of, of this poem, um, um, Nilema Karkanis asks, um, what are things you find difficult to write and you write anyway? And how do you go about it? So how do you go about writing the things that are almost too difficult to write? Mm. Um, that's a good question. I think a lot of a lot of the poems about like my mother and about grief are really difficult to write, to be honest. Um, and I think I just have to like I just feel compelled to do so in some way, and maybe a lot of that comes from a place of needing some sort of connection over this difficult thing. Um, like, I think even if I didn't start out writing something with the intent to publish it, there's still, I need to get this out because I feel so alone in it and I want to not feel so alone in it. Oh yeah. That's a great way to put it. Feeling alone in it. Um, in a different vein, another question, uh, this is from Spartacus at Ignostorus. Um, do you think that the power of performance makes a poem accessible to an audience? And is poetry also theater and acting? Do you think about performance? And have yeah. you done a lot of readings? Like as a scientist poet, um, do you have an opportunity to do many readings? And of course, the book's coming up now when there aren't as many live things as they used to, but there are more things like this. Um, do you think about poetry as a performance or do you are you more page oriented? I think comparatively, I am a bit more page oriented, but I do um, do a fair amount, a fair number of readings. Um, I think uh, pre-pandemic, I probably did like one reading a month on average. Um, and I think that's a great point. I think performance does make poetry more accessible, actually, um, both because then random people who aren't necessarily even there to for the reading can like come across it and maybe feel captivated in some way um and yeah i think even people who don't necessarily read poetry can feel something from a good reading uh i'm reminded of um, so the past couple weeks have been Lit Quake, this big literary festival in San Francisco. And a few Lit Quakes ago, um, I read this poem uh, that I can read later. Um, that is one of my very few sort of funny poems. And the entire time, like this kid who had been in the audience, um, I think I want to say his mom was also one of the readers. Like, he had just been bored on his phone, and, like, at that poem, he, like, was paying attention, and I felt so proud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there's also the way that, um, I think about this all the time, too, but in, in a reading, you can introduce the poem a little bit, and you sort of know the context, whereas in a book, you sort of come at it cold in a different way. 
um, which is one of the things I, I love about readings is I love the little preamble as long as it's not too long. <laughs> but um, but I do love hearing about the way that poems, you know, what's going to come. And then you're, you're sort of like conditioned to know where to go with it, which is a really nice thing too about, about readings. Um, let's see. So we have time for one more poem. Do you want to finish out with um, something to end it? Uh, sure. Maybe I'll just read that funny poem then so we can end on a light note. Okay. Uh, it's on page 59, and it is the next great American love story. The next great American love story. If love is my religion, Craigslist misconnections are my Bible. Mark, 1.12 p.m. Smoking hunk of cheese at the beach. You said, you must be tired. You know the rest. I said, you could melt the sun. Beat that. Luke, 3.17 a.m. You, English major with long lashes. Me, engineer with crooked smile. You were teaching me salsa. Let's tango. Sam, 4.10 p.m. We were drunk. You left a bruise. Sorry I avoided you for a month. I think you're cute. Too little, too late? John, 8.24 a.m. You were reading Walt Whitman on the bus this morning. 3269272. Call me so we can reconnect the stars. Sometimes... You read about love, so beautiful, so hopeless, your chest bruises from the heroic collision. This is not it. That was um, the next great American love story um, from Focal Point. Jenny, thanks so much for being a guest today. Uh, it was just a pleasure getting to talk to you and um, knowing more of your work and sharing this wonderful book. Thank you so much, Tim. This has been really lovely. Thanks yeah. so much for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good night. Have a good night. So that was uh, Jenny Chi. And once again, her book is uh, right here, Focal Point. Um, it was one of the 2020 Steel Toe, um, Steel Toe, let me see. Steel Toe Books Poetry Award is what that's called. You can find more of Jenny's work at, um, at um, her website, which is um, jqiwriter.com. That's jqiwriter.com. So um, find more of Jenny's work there and, and pick up a copy of Focal Point. Just a wonderful, beautiful book um, and, and very moving the way it, it feels so intimate. It's such an intimate book. Um, speaking feels to um, her mother mostly. So um, just beautiful work. Um, pick that up. Now we are going to go to a quick break. And then we are going to do our um, prompt poems and our open lines and whatever you would like to share. Now, the prompt for this week, I'll put it on screen. It was, a ballad is a music-based poem that tells a story. This form isn't especially complicated, but does have very specific requirements. Um, some examples are The Lady of Shalott, etc., Casey at the Bat. Um, it's the old, you know, music-style poem, um, usually in a in a four-beats-then-three-beats um meter with a rhyme scheme and telling a story um and that's your prompt for this week is to write a ballad 
So um, we will come back. I'll get all that set up. And I'm also going to tell you that next week's guest in the Randallcast can be Ernest Hilbert. And note the special time. We are doing this show on uh, Saturday instead of Sunday because Sunday is Halloween. But we picked a book of creepy poems. Um, Caligulan is uh, one of Ernest Hilbert's most recent books. And that is about American folklore and creepiness and, and all sorts of uh, wonderful things like that. And so we're going to do it the night before Halloween, sort of kick off the Halloween holiday with some creepy stuff. We're also going to have a prompt, which is uh, the open lines will be entirely creepy poems. So find a creepy poem, write a creepy poem. That'll be your, your prompt for next week, and we're going to do it a day early on Saturday, October 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. That way the kiddos can still do their trick-or-treating and stuff like that. So uh, we'll see you then for that. And now we'll be back in just a moment with Open Lines. And uh, thanks so much for your patience. We are back. And um, I didn't I didn't share the uh, way to call in this time, so let me do that right now. How it works is you email your poems right now to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. And uh, that way I can show the poem on the screen as you read it. And then if you would like to join us, all you do is let the phone um, call me up at 818-850-7727 over the phone. Let it ring a few times and hang up. That'll put you on my call list. I'll call you back within the next hour. And then it'll be your turn to read. We go pretty much in the order that these requests were received. Um, I'll try to put some first-time callers ahead just so in case we run out of time at the end, we won't um, we won't miss any first-time callers. And um, the other option is to do it over Skype if you want to be on video too. And all you do there is similarly just send me a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word, and uh, say I'd like to read a poem, and then I will call you when it's your turn. But first... Um, share the poem to openmic at rattle.com so that I can pull it up on screen as you read it when we call you. Um, and also do note that the there's a delay in the broadcast. And so once I call you, only listen to me and talk through that one source. So only listen through your phone or through your um, um, Skype. And that way you won't be confused by the delay. So stop watching your stream where you're watching this now when you call and just uh, listen through the phone or whatever. And that way, we won't be confused. And that is how the open lines work. And now, we're going to go back to our prompt poem for today. And the prompt, once again, was to write a ballad. And here is Megan's ballad. These are Megan's prompts, of course. And we are honored to have a poem by Megan every week, pretty much. And this is uh, Megan's poem for this week. This is Ballad of a Bricklayer. Bill was born to a bricklayer, a rough and tired man, and a mother who sighed a lot but stayed when that man ran. When Pop ran to woman and booze and came home past midnight, Ma looked the other way so hard her neck got sore and tight. In school, the teachers gave Bill praise when he wrote letters neat and told him he was dumb as bricks when he danced in his seat. He ate his white bread sandwiches and played ball at recess and took a stride at the rolling eyes of girls who weren't impressed. Pop kept drinking and laying brick while Ma inhaled his dust, and at dinner they coughed and coughed, and nothing was discussed. Pop had worked hard for twenty years, and Ma had made it so, but college was highway robbery. Son, you know you can't go. Bill learned from Pop how to lay brick and picked it up real good, and tried to never think about the shoulds and clouds and woods. He married a quiet lady 
he met at a church dance, and if you'd ask him if he'd drink, he'd have said, not a chance. But those damn shoulds, those woulds and coulds, they were loud in his head, and even when the babies came, sometimes he would see red. He was a good hard worker now, but barely made ends meet, and tried to avoid his wife's eyes, scared she'd see his defeat. He liked the smoky dark of bars, how the drinks went down and smooth, and how the women never said, Oh, Bill, tell me the truth. The drinks went down, the bed was cold, and thirty years went by, till Bill's heart got as hard as a brick, and he knew he was soon to die. At his bedside knelt his son John, holding his icy hand, asking Bill for words of wisdom to help him understand. Bill wanted to give him guidance, something the boy could trust, but when Bill tried to speak the words, all that came out was dust. That is uh, Megan's prompt poem for this week. Uh, another great one. That is Ballad of a Bricklayer. Thanks so much for writing and sharing that, Megan. And uh, let's call up somebody. Let's call up the first person who asked. And um, let's see. So Nivy can't make it right now. I'll, I'll read her poems later. Let's call up Angela Gartner just so the first time callers too can see how it goes. Hey, Angela, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, and what do you have that you wanted to share? Um. Well, it was it was kind of a ballad. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, it is. You know, I tried to follow the form, but I don't know if I did anyway. But it's just, um, it's kind of a dark poem. Um, you know, it's a dark Halloween month. So it's so funny. Everyone's like, you write such dark poems, but you always seem very happy. But <laughs> Well, maybe that's why you manage to stay happy is because you get to get your darkness out some other way. <laughs> well, I'm just always a fan of, you know, kind of the dark side and, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of Poe, but I also have a fan of Stephen King. And, you know, I just, I don't know, I've always been drawn to, you know, um, you know, H.P. Lovecraft. I've been always drawn to more of like the dark um, story. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, this is uh, to have the last word. I have it up. Whatever you're ready, go ahead. To have the last word. I went to my room up the stairs. The sparks rose from the fireplace a letter she wrote was gone. The charred ashes flew in my face. A goodbye to me, no love to hold. There's no way we can begin again. With ripped pants and blood on my shoes, a ring box I threw in my pain. The flames were dancing out. My hand waved at her ghost while floating above our mattress. An empty glass sat beside my note. Oh, I love that. That's a great kickoff for the Halloween type weekend. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> to have the last word. Definitely a creepy ending. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Angela. Thank you. And, and I uh, think the, great... the ballad form worked well too. So I, th I think that worked. Oh, good. I, I'm glad. And that was a great showing up. I mean, you pick such good poems for poets respond. I'm so jealous of all of them because they're just so good. <laughs> so, <laughs> they are. I mean, well, it's an, so honor, an honor to have like, you know, 150 or 200 poems to choose from every week. So, um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, they were, they're just so good. I mean, they're always good. I'm always, I'm always surprised at what you pick, but everything <laughs> you pick is good. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. That's exactly what I hope for. Um, so, <laughs> so thanks for saying that. Thanks. Well, you have a great week. Thank yep, you. You too, Angela. Always great talking to you. 
Oh, it's good too. Right. Thanks. Bye. It was Angela Gartner. And um, next up, we have a whole bunch of first time callers. So let's um, try to run through those and see who we get. Um, I wonder, let's see. Let's see. Well, we'll try this. We have a, I'll just say the numbers we have. We have a 267 number. We have an 858. We have a 309. And um, so let's see. Yeah, so those are the first time callers. I'm going to move through these and see what we have and who we can talk to. Hey, Jim. Hey, this is uh, Tim of the Rattle. You are live on the air. Who am I talking to? It's Christine. How are you? Good. How are you? Christine Vizzi. Yeah. Good. How are you? Good. I don't think, have you called in before or not? I can't remember. No, I sent in a poem for the first time this week. So I'm a first time caller, first time anything. Excellent. Well, I'm so great you could. Um, What did you want to share today? Where are you calling from too first? I like to always know. Uh, I'm from Philadelphia. Ah, excellent. And um, so so what did you want to share today? So um, I had sent in two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the better one to share is Elevated, which is my response to today's poem. Um, okay. Well, you if you want to share them both, um, feel free or just one. It's up to you, but they're pretty short, I see. So if you want to share them both, Yeah, they're good. pretty short. So, okay, that would be great. Okay, sure. So let's hear the response to um, Between Stations then first. Okay. Um, it's Elevated. Okay. Is there anything I you want to say to about pretend... it before you, before you start? Oh. Other than um, so, basically, I'm from Philadelphia. I actually fell asleep on the L. Oh wow! Um, not long before that incident, and nothing happened to me. Mm-hmm. But I have had odd incidents with men previously in the city. Um, so I went from that kind of point of view, where yeah, what I would feel. If you, I were in that situation, what I'm wondering is, is this something new you think it does? I don't know. Cause you never know how much it's just like attentional bias, like how much we're shown. Um, is it, is this sort of like bystanders not caring a new thing? Do you think, or is it, is it something that's I, increasingly going no, on or is it just the same as always been? The media glomming onto the metaverse concept that was shared in Dick's poem. Mm-hmm. Um, that was his name, right? Yeah, Somebody yeah, yeah. Westheimer, Dick West. So, so that whole metaverse theory, where you know people are being filmed on this train and they're doing this filming of this event, and how many different points of view there are about that. Mm-hmm. Even in journalism, they're covering it from an unbiased standpoint supposedly, but there's still a bit of bias because you put your own bias onto what they're saying. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it gets very meta yeah. and very like what is actually happening. <laughs> yeah. I just, I have no faith. I, we've discussed this before on the radio. I have no faith in the media whatsoever to tell the truth about anything. So I always wonder like, is this, I always think of the year of the shark, which was, um, before 9-11 that 2001 summer um we yeah. were just bombarded in the news with these shark attack stories as if like the number one threat to humanity was sharks and then it turned out it was and like the same number has happened every year and it was no different but and if now you watch the news you would just week. exactly yeah yeah exactly so i mean i just wonder if it's it's one of those things where somebody decided hey and then it just has its own momentum 
um, where we just hear about everything more or if, if something's really changing. And I, I don't know the difference on this story, but, but it's definitely a, a disheartening story to hear. I don't think it was so much um, that happening as the point of view. Mm-hmm. And Abbott is from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Like the Abbots are from Philadelphia area. So everything that's happening with that whole thing is kind of like weird to me. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I said Philly, somebody said on Twitter that Philly is a sex and death cult. And I was like, Philly is definitely a cult. <laughs> and, <laughs> weird. And if we're all living and dying, then yeah. Interesting. Well, let's hear this poem, um, which was Elevated. Okay. Elevated. I had to pretend I liked it. I liked him. That maybe in a different situation, we could be friends and grab a few drinks. What if he found me after? Followed me to finish the job. They didn't know, as they filmed, thought that I was a slob. The breakdown of civilization is not indifference, not hostility, the normalization of society's inhibitions. Some of us get the free ride to fame and play a bigger role. Some of us pay for a ride on the train and pay a bigger toll. Bees, dogs, plants, cities smell fear, tread carefully but never lightly. Bricks are heavy. Trains hit harder and more rapidly. Yeah, excellent response. It was elevated, a response to today's response. So thanks for sharing that, um, Cindy, yeah. and, or Christine, I should say. And what was the other <laughs> poem that you, that you wanted to share? Uh, my other poem is AIG, which is supposed to evoke the uh, financial situation, mm-hmm. and uh, it's also short for America is Great. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very sardonic. Um, And I've just been thinking a lot about these things. And there's a passage in there that I had an argument with an editor over. (laughs) And (laughs) that was part of what made me want to share it tonight. Um, Was we are as great as we're getting. Hmm. And she was stuck on that passage. And I was like, well, if you read past that, there's dual meaning, um, which I can go into, I guess, after I read it, if you want. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, go ahead. Let's read this one. Okay. Okay. Here we are again, biting the hand that feeds, free lunch in the rear view. The Great Depression was tragedy. The Great Resignation, acceptance. We are as great as we are getting when we have given it all away and still continue to take, pretending to be so poor, sinking to these depths, selfishly shallow, full of shit, septic, and set to explode. We stand in line like a wick on a stick of dynamite, burning for more. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And um, yeah, we're we're in a strange time. I think I I was about to bring it up with Jenny, and then we sort of got off the, you know, sidetracked a little bit by something else. But you know, she mentioned writing the book in 2016, and it really feels like the in the last not just 16, but maybe like even a little earlier, the country's just like going off the rails, and we're just like losing it. (laughs) We got to find a way back on the tracks. Already off the track, and it's gone. 
into the pasture yeah. <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I, I think so. Too. I feel like uh, remember in 2012 there was that um, the end of the world, the, the Mayan calendar. Dead, like, yeah. Um, and I wonder if, like, maybe it didn't. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, thanks for sharing these poems. Uh, really wonderful to uh, hear them both. It was Christine uh, VC. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Okay. And uh, let me add uh, Christine back into our phone book so we know who it is next time. Hope, hope we can call in again soon, Christine. And then let's go to another first-time caller. We have two more first-timers, and then we have a bunch of other people that we're, we're used to seeing. So let's do, let's do as many as we can. And this is an 858 number we're calling up next. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air. Who am I talking to? I think I hear myself in the background, though, so mute. Um, okay, there you go. Um, so who am I talking to, and where are you from? Susan Lipson. And I'm from Poway, California. Ah, great. Thanks so much for joining us. I think you were on last week, right, Susan? I think I'm on. I was. Yeah. Yeah, I got excited last week by the ballad. (laughs) Yeah, that's wonderful. So, um, yes, we have the ballad of the seafarer's son. This is going to be fun. Um, um, Is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Sure. Um, what the, I read this article about all the seafarers that are stuck in ships off the coast of California. And I read this, just this one um, passage really caught me and it was about a guy who earns $460 a month said he never wanted a life working the seas but he had given his father his father's dying wish was for him to become a seafarer and he said I'm fulfilling his dream it's not that I want to I have to oh, and his other reason that he listed was I'm sending all of my money back home to my mother and so I, I thought ah, there's a ballad right in there a guy <laughs> who's, who's living a, his father's life so yeah yeah this sounds great Yeah, looking forward to it. Here, I'll put it on screen. Go ahead whenever you are ready. Okay. Ballad of the Seafarer's Son. He never yearned to be a seafaring man, dreamed of a writer's life on verdant land, but he yielded to his father rather than divulging his wish, mocked and banned. His fisherman father's dying wish filled the obedient heart of his son, who feared the rough waves and the smell of fish, but felt that his father's will must be done. So he signed up for work on a ship with great dread, far from his mother and family at home, to earn as his dad did and keep them all fed, this hesitant wanderer faded to roam. His passionless eyes stared out at the sea, imagining how he would raise his own boys. He would build them a fort high up in a tree, no hooks, blood, or knives, just books, games, and toys. A storm changed his life when a huge lightning bolt struck the mast that his fingers struggled to grip. The woeful fisherman shrieked with the jolt of electrical power that made his heart skip. The medics came running and did CPR while the soul of the young man was traveling. His search for his father did not take him far. He'd been watching his son's life unraveling. If you have been watching, Dad, all through my plight, then why didn't you intervene? His dad pointed up with a finger of light, a bolt. Ah, I see what you mean. The son's lifeless body refilled with his soul as the medics erupted in cheers. When asked how he felt, the son smiled and said, whole, the seawater mixed with his tears. The miracle man was taken ashore and the media clamored to meet him. 
the writer's life that he dreamed of before his seafaring life could deplete him, that fantasy life was suddenly real. His memoir flowed out like a wave. And before he had finished, he had a book deal. He signed copies beside his dad's grave. His mother and siblings stared at the ground, listening to the excerpt he read about the wondrous journey he'd found in the time he was technically dead. The sales of his memoir earned him enough to keep the vow to provide for his clan. And his dad, who'd known sea life would prove much too tough, blessed his sea-fearing writer to become his own man. Oh, that was excellent. Great ballad, Susan. Thank that was you. Ballad of a Seafarer's Son. Uh, Susan Lipson, thanks so much for sharing that, Susan. Th- these Thank ballads you. are making me think so much of the um, poetry, the cowboy poetry. The, the What are they called? The Elko Roundup, where they they're, you know they have all the folk ballads. Um, it'd be fun. you know. Th- those make for really fun readings. I'm glad you could share that. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yep. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye. So that was uh, Susan Lipson. And let me put Susan in the phone book. Oops. That, that way. Um, let me put Susan in the phone book for next time. And uh, we'll call up another first-time caller. And next up was the 309 number. Let's see who that was. Hello? Hey, this is Tim from Metal. You are live on the air. Who am I talking to? Tim, this is Mike Bales. I apologize for the confusion. I was out of minutes, so I had to borrow someone's phone. <laughs> no problem at all. It's great to hear hear from you again. Mike, how you been doing today? Pretty good. It's kind of a cold, dreary day, kind of a downer. Yeah, so. well, around here, you know, in California, we're, we're going to get rain tonight. And I was um, a little late for the show because I was, like, batting down the hatches, putting the covers over our wood pile and stuff. And um, we get excited if it's a gray and gloomy day because it's so rare. Um. Sometimes I like them. Today is just kind of down, kind of a sinus time for me, too. So so uh, what what poems did you want to share? I'm trying to find them right here. Um, it's the Heroes of Native Land, which was, I sent it early this week, like Monday or that. It's unsubmittable. Okay, yeah, I'll pull that up. Just a second. And so um, what was that about? What do you want to, can you describe um, what was going on? There's news. I've been by it in the Squawky area mm-hmm. reservation. They've got a casino. It's between Cedar Rapids and Ames, you know, and I've been driving through that part of the state. And they got an award from the National Indian Health Board for their high vaccination rate of 71%. And it's kind of a neat land around their reservation in central Iowa is kind of neat. I once wanted to live around there. So yeah, it's that's about yeah. Meskwaki and their award. Yeah, it's nice to have um, a poem about about something good too. Like a, it's a good news poem, which doesn't come up very often. Yeah, I think it is good, and the, the work spread as you'll see their work. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you saw you probably have the the quote on there from the article. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'll put this on the screen. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Um, Heroes of native land, Musquaki proclaim their love of winds and the sun that shines in central Iowa. They love the hawk, its visions of the land, but they look for an answer for the virus invading their nation. To the occasion they rise, the death of 34 of their tribe leads to vaccinations, teachers and elders first, then to other members, 71% vaccinated at all. Work honored, they accept a soft-spoken pride. 
The mobile clinic they purchased goes to Tama and Marshalltown. Efforts spread all the way to the Juneteenth celebration in Des Moines. And leaders say what the government provides, let us put in the arms of Native tribes and those who surround. Their nation lies on the shoulders of U.S. 30, near where the Iowa River flows, cutting through fields and remnant prairie land. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. That was um, um, Heroes of Native Land. And uh, really a nice a nice story for a change. It's really nice to have. And, and that's an impressive vaccination rate. Like even you know, other countries, they tend to say um, the vaccine rate in terms of over a certain percentage of the population, which makes it seem higher um, by age, I mean. And um, so 71% is, is right up there among the world's leaders. That's really cool. Yeah. Actually, I was better than I thought. I thought I heard on public radio or somewhere that they're up to 64%. I hope that means both shots. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was, there's been a problem. I think there are a lot of people who aren't for vaccinations in Iowa. There are people I know who I try to keep from telling off who don't believe in the <laughs> vaccinations. But, yeah. you know. There's some good news. Iowa supposedly peaked in its uh, high vaccine in its high COVID rate. It supposedly peaked maybe a couple weeks ago. So we're so I'd hope it'd be going down. Yeah, very good. Well, I hope it's the last the last wave we get. It'd be really nice if it was. Huh? But th- thanks for sharing that, Mike. It's always a pleasure talking okay. to you. Okay, thanks. Yep. Good night. And that was Mike Bales with uh, Heroes of Native Land, and uh, let's. Let's do, um, let's call up, let's call up Spartacus. Spartacus hasn't been on in a long time, and I believe it's very late where he is. So let's call up Spartacus and see how he's doing. And um, he has a poem for us here, Critique of the Gods of Global Economy. Spartacus, hello, how are you doing? Hiya, nice to see you again, Tim. Yeah, great to see you too. Let me try to find... Okay, so I have to hang on one second. To kind of make uh, something's going on with your video. It's my fault, but I have to yeah. I have to change the size so you can see you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me hang on. Oh, it dropped. Oh, I remember how to do this. Hang on a second. Bear with me, everybody. I'm sorry. If I re, if I re, say this, then it'll resize. No, it didn't work. Um. Well, we'll have to have you um, <laughs> just in voice. Or, or well, actually, if I put yes. up the poem, here we go. This is what we'll do. Mm-hmm. If I put up the poem, yeah. we can mm-hmm. actually, there we yes. go. That's how to do it. Okay. So we yeah. have you, Spartaco. Sorry, for, sorry everybody, for, for the delay. But it's great to see you. How are you doing? And, and you haven't been in call in a while because it's a later show now. Are you, are you in the UK or are you back in Greece? Um, yes, I'm in the UK. Um, things are getting better, but um, I've been uh, busier than before, so um, keep moving around different places, uh-huh. <laughs> which is not ideal um, for preparing poems and uh, staying late during the night. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you can. It's just always a pleasure to see you. Uh, what did you want to share today, this critique of the gods of global economy? Um, can you talk? Um, tell us about it? Yeah, it's about the Pandora Papers mm-hmm. um, and all the stories that came out. And I thought I could combine it with um, comedy and Aristophanes about the blind cut of um, wealth uh, called uh, Plutus. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, why don't you explain a little bit about that Pandora Papers? Because I um we didn't get a lot of poems about that actually, and I I, I would have thought yes. we might. So maybe people don't really know much about it. Can you explain what that is? Yes. Um, so uh, these are some uh, economic transactions of some leaders of the world, mm-hmm. um, and they are based on different places, um, on on dif- in different countries. Um, so, in a way, they are breaking their own rules. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they, they are trying to adapt um, um, different rules for themselves, but in their countries, they want um, the rules for all. Um, it's more about economic transactions and uh, how the wealth moves from one person to another um, in modern times. Mm-hmm. And this was something that inspired me because it's, um, again, how the god Plutus is blind and doesn't see what is going on. Um, I feel as a citizen that um, I'm blind. Um, I don't see um, how things are going uh, during my times. Yeah, I know exactly the the feeling. Like I feel like something is going on right now, just with a global economy that we don't know. Like we don't have the whole story too. In addition to it, so I don't know. We we definitely there's a news for us and a news for them too as well. Uh, but let's hear this poem, critique of the gods of global economy. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Mm-hmm. Dear immortal gods of wealth and comedy, every time I'm thinking that the smell of a red rose is the most beautiful memory on earth. I close my eyes and I'm dreaming that I'm a working class dwarf named Plutus. Sometimes I feel nice when I remember small flowers coming together to meet persons that I want to see on earth. Sometimes I feel even better when I look at flowers growing up to face a struggling, falling sky. But every time I open my eyes to search for stars, I'm living in nightmares of galaxies created to be destroyed by one-eyed giants and their blind leaders. I can meet more than one Midas wishing a climate crisis in an aging golden universe of endless numbers and promising hordes. Can you taste the cherries left on the trees? Can you hear the story of the waves that give birth to seagulls? How much I wish you could save a tiny bit of this birthplace called Earth. Oh, great poem as always, Spartacus. Uh, And that was... um... Once again, that was um, a critique of the gods of the global economy. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Just a wonderful poem, and, and great to see you again. Thanks, Tim. Nice to see you. Um, yeah. have, a, have a good evening. Yeah, I will. You too. Good night. Bye. Okay, yeah, that was Spartacus. And uh, let's see who we have next. Let's call up... Um, Let's go to Carla Schwartz and then Joseph Nolan. That's the two we'll do next. Hey, Carla, how you doing? Uh, yeah, so I wrote a ballad, um, and uh, it's about where I live. Um, 
which is uh, an island in Lake Winnipesaukee, uh, until uh, I have to leave. And um, and all the people who live on this island, a lot of them have already left because of the, it's getting cold and the weather's getting turning and and they they've taken up their docks and it's very kind of forlorn, you know, in mm-hmm. some ways and also beautiful in other ways. Okay. So I'll just get to the poem. Yeah, just one second. Let me let me get the poem I'll, up. I'll I'm still trying up. to play with this yeah. this video issue. Okay. Um, at, at some point, for one color, I'll get it fixed, and then it'll be back to normal. But this is the Ballad of Bear Island in October. Yeah, so go ahead whenever you're ready. Exactly. Okay, great. People, don't let yourselves be fooled by the warmish air. Don't let yourselves be deceived. No, by the calm out here on the lake if it doesn't feel like October, rather, as we paddle out, it feels like summer. In only days from now, the winds will churn the swirling waves when chillier air returns, breaking its restraint. Tight-wound reels of cable winched to lift and suspend the docks that overhang the island's ragged shores way above the rocks At water's edge, the glacial dump of granite mica quartz as clothes are neatly stored away and families prepare to depart. The island's paths, now desolate, save stones as big as rooms, moss-covered pines and hardwood trees and fallen leaves strewn about the trails, obscure a feast, black trumpets, pungent and large hen of the woods tucked into stone if they've not yet been foraged for by squirrels and stubborn deer who roam the island wild through front yards and low fenced gardens chewing as they smile hooray the people have drained their pipes cleared their fridges of food buttoned up their houses and left the island for good But here we sit in our cozy nest, readying for a swim. We look out at the roiling waves and prepare to fight the wind. It's now October, full of bluster, but the island belongs to us. We step out into the outdoor shower to infuse heat back into us. But as the daylight diminishes and the chill sets in to stay, A sadness lingers over us as we ready for the day. We have to fire up the compressor and stow away our boats, winch up the dock like all the rest and bid farewell to all this. Farewell to the woods behind our house, to swims out the front door until winter if the lake freezes thick so that we may return once more. Oh, that was great. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. It really captures that feeling. And and I don't know, I, I, I'm finding myself getting a little jealous. I would love, if I was living there, I would love this time of year when everybody leaves and it gets quiet again. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is, it is really, it is really amazing. Really, really amazing. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. It's great, great to hear. Thank you so much, Tim. Take care. You Bye-bye. too. Bye. You had a wonderful example of the ballad form. Okay, let me try. Before I call again, I'm going to try to fix this. How was it? Transform. Reset transform. Ah, reset transform. That's what I have to pick. 
reset transform. Everybody remember that? So next time I get stuck, you can you can tell me. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's call up um, Zachary Honeycutt. Um, Zach hasn't been on in a while. And he's got a a gozzle, it looks like. Or sonnet and a gozzle. Tim, how's it going, man? Great. How you doing, Zachary? Good to see good to hear you. Great. So uh, what did you want to share with us tonight? Yeah, so um did you get I texted you a picture for this poem of this old decrepit house. Did you get it? Let me see. Hang on one second. I didn't check the this part. Um, calm. No, I don't think I did, actually. No, I didn't get it, the picture. Sorry. All right. That's all right. I, uh, yeah, so I have a Halloween-y, dark kind of poem about this old, decrepit house that I wrote that I want to share, and I also have a fall gazelle I'd like to share. Very cool. Well, uh, do you want? Do you, are you going to have another creepy poem for next week, or do you want to uh, save it for next week and just do the other one? Oh, Tim, you know me by now. I have a ton of dark poems to read. So <laughs> yeah, I, uh... I was thinking. Okay, well, let's do both then, because they're, they're not too long. Let's do Sonnet 10, and let's do the Gazel too. Yeah, believe me, Tim, I saved the big guns <laughs> for next week. <laughs> okay, well, I'm looking forward. I'm really going to have a lot of fun with this next week's show, where we have... I um... can't wait. Yeah, me too. Okay, but let's do this. Uh, sonnet number 10 first. A house forgot. I wish we had the picture, but it probably took too long to go through the you know, relays of, of SMS or whatever. But anyway, let's uh, hear the Sonnet 10. Okay. Sonnet 10, A House Forgotten. That house is better days behind, not lacking its character, but everything else he sees. Shafted by time and tough terrain attacking the siding, entrenched roots unravel its knees. Such misfortune must have been its portion, It's just going through the motions, thought he, aching outside and flaunting its fortune, because it don't give a damn about history. All that could be said was not just spoken, but heard by it, and disregarded, he surmised. Taunts of neighborhood kids was its token, their children and their ghosts somehow surprised. The grimy window panes do not conceal, some shadow passing by to show it's real. Very great. That creepy sonnet. And we watched uh, Monster House yesterday. That uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's Dizzy or Pixar or whatever, but um, I'm really getting into the Halloween spirit. Can't wait for the Halloween show on Saturday. Um, and that was a good preview of, of what's to come. And what's the gozzle that you have for us? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, let me just pull up. I want to read you what I my description that I gave for the uh, Rattle Poetry Contest because I submitted this. So this is the best way for me to describe it. The gazal that I wrote deals with the fall. Each couplet deals with a different type of realm of fall. The fall of Satan, the fall of America, a physical fall, the spiritual fall of Adam and Eve and mankind, the season of fall, and the non-fatal fall of a righteous man who puts their faith in and has their sights set on God. Hmm. Um, and the couplet at the end is an allusion to Psalm 37. So this is just a uh, very complex kind of gazal. I put, I put like a twist on it. I, I gave it a little extra oomph 
and I use the image of clouds in every couplet, but like I said, every couplet is like another unique aspect of looking at fall in a different way. Well, interesting. Let's hear it. Go ahead. Okay. Bizarre. It began. Some haughty things fell from newborn clouds. An old child of mourning lurking where there's no clouds. A straightforward continent lying down crooked, whistle-blowing, blue-skinned, holy rolling under clouds. Father always helped me to stand when I fell down. Toddling Christians must baby-step toward the far clouds. What a lovely thing to be ignorant and free, a time when angels didn't guard a tree under clouds. The fall looks back at me with red and brown eyes, how could man's ideas ignore the author of clouds? Righteous men will fall, but not die holding hands with God. He directs his friend, Zachary, to wholesome clouds. Oh, that was a very interesting poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Zachary. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, always my pleasure. Looking forward to uh, Saturday, too. Yeah, I'll see you then. Yep. Good night. Good night. And that was uh, Ghazal and Sonnet 10 by Zachary Honeycutt. And um, let us move to... Um, let us move to... Where was I? Oh, yeah, let's do um, Nilema Karkanis. Hi, Nilema. You are live on the air with Rattle. Um, what do you want to share with us tonight? Okay, so I have this poem called Flowers on the Face of Time. And um, it's, it's a, like, I, I guess if I have to describe it, I write very lyrically, as you may have picked up on at this point. Mm-hmm. And I like to play with um, kind of the form. So this is, a, it's telling a story in three parts of a character you know, playing with memory and time, basically. Well, it sounds interesting. I'm looking forward uh, yeah. to hearing it. Yeah, I have it up um, whenever you're ready. Go ahead. Okay. Flowers on the face of time. One. This time around, skin as old as roses now, scars, anatma, dispersal of all existence, weathered. I have this face given and invisible, eyes big with awe, I sing to myself to remain calm. I grew up from words and friendship about art and loneliness and silence and writing. Anatma, can we be reborn this many times from particles too small and too far away to imagine? In the solar blue, my name meant something, nothing, and everything to you. Design and tissue and alignment. You can be eaten and no one sees becoming a ghost again. Yes, it's happened before. Lonely rooms hold broken bodies. Her doctor said they won't let the press in the hospitals. Whistleblowers need channels, not angles. I forgot when I was born. I forgot hiding under a weeping willow tree. I forgot my life story. I forgot school and running away from home. I forgot how much I loved everybody. I forgot running absurdist scenes. I forgot which watch was my favorite, 
the one with the flower face or the plain one with the thin band. I was born with a thought in my mind, very round, dark eyes, a full head of shiny blue-black hair. I waited underneath the weeping willow tree with a cat, a marble, and a penny, forgetting who I am, then taking that penny and some snacks, leaving, then coming back. Because there's no bus anyway, and I loved you so much. Running lines from scenes with characters named A and B, tossing marbles back and forth. Why does glass hurt? I checked the time waiting for you to pick me up and take me to the new place, absorbing the picture of flowers on the face of time. Well, that was very cool. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was one of those, um, you know, just listening to you read was very meditative, especially with the rhythms and the repetitions <laughs> in that second sentence, um, or second section, I mean. Um, what is that word, um, anatma? That sounds familiar. It reminds me of like Atman, like it might be Sanskrit. But what does that mean? I, it sounds familiar, but I can't remember. Yeah, it's a Buddhist term that means like the absence of a soul, but that sounds like weird in Christianity, but it really means that like we're, our existence is, you know, within us, but also dispersed, right? Mm -hmm. Like just like particles, <laughs> like, you know, we're kind of connected to this infinity, but then we're also, that's how I describe it anyway. Yeah. We also have the inner space. Oh, very cool. Thanks. I really enjoyed listening to that. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you so much. Good night. Appreciate it. Yeah, so once again, that was uh, Nilema Karkanis with a Flowers on the Face of Time. Um, let's do Nivedita's, one of Nivedita's. And this is Nivedita's ballad, A Ballad by the Beach. This is Nivedita Karthik. Um, she could make the show live, but let's read this poem uh, by her, A Ballad by the Beach. She asks, I meet her at the shore, the lighthouse by the rocks. I wonder what she has in store, seems like one of those talks. So I head down, on down to the beach and spy her pacing there, up and up down as she rehearses her speech, goosebumps in the warm air. She tells me she's had it to hear and can no longer cope. She's tired of letting the fear slowly steal all her hope. So she's changed it up and came out to fell the sun's warm rays as the lockdown, long drawn out, set her dreams ablaze. So here we stand, two girls at sea, a hamper of food to share. With COVID on the way out, you see, life starts afresh with a flare. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Nivedita. That was Nivedita Karthik with A Ballad by the Beach. And usually her other poems are short, too. Let me see. As long as it's not too long, we'll do this one. It comes from a Huffington Post article. And, yeah, this is going to be short, too. So this is a Huffington Post article. Um, Five-hour bus tour of Hong Kong caters to sleep-deprived. And I'll put this on screen, too, if you could see it. Um, the 47-mile ride on a double-decker bus is meant to appeal to people who are um, easily lulled asleep by long rides. Oh, that's interesting. So it's a um, a sleep bus ride. I like that. I could I could go for one of those. Um, travel star, sleep deprived residents might find a new Hong Kong bus tour to be a snooze. The seventy six kilometer five hour ride in a regular double decker bus around the ter territory is meant to appeal to people who are easily lulled to sleep by long rides. It was inspired by the tendency of tired commuters to fall asleep on public transit. And then we have a photograph here of um, some of the riders asleep. 
Um, uh, that's very fun. Okay, so let's see. Uh, let's see this uh, short poem that Nivedita um, shares with us today. This is "Pay to Sleep." There once, or there was once a man called Lee who drank cups of chamomile tea. He even tried counting sheep, but try, to try and fall asleep. But alas, for Lee, sleep was not to be. So he journeyed on the bus, you see, guaranteed to help you catch some Z's. On this five-hour ride, sleep did come, and Lee woke up refreshed and then some with just a $51 fee. <laughs> That's a good, funny poem, Nivedita. Always a pleasure to uh, have these these funner, lighter news stories highlighted and, then, uh, and shared with a fun poem. Thanks. It was Pay to Sleep by Nivedita Karthik. Well, Joseph Nolan is asking me to call. I wonder if he'll answer if I do. Um, I didn't see him on the call screen, but we'll try this too. Okay, let, let's let's try. Oops, not that one. Hey, Joseph, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Did you want to share this poem? Imagine William Tell. Imagine Alec Baldwin. Yes, actually, there's two versions of it. Uh... And uh, the later version was a bit longer. It's got uh, William Burroughs thrown into the title as well. Uh, okay. I sent that in five minutes before the show began. Gotcha. Did you find I, it? Yep, I pulled that up instead. So I have this one out instead. So imagine William Tell, Alec Baldwin, William Burroughs. And this, of course, right. is the, the tragedy that happened on the set of Rust this week. I thought we'd get more poems about that, too. But maybe it was too late um, in the week. But um, Alec Baldwin fatally shooting um, the director of cinematography, I believe, is a, just an accident in the middle of um, bad set management, it sounds like. But but I don't know how what your everybody's interpretation of it is. Somebody put live rounds into a gun, a pistol. It was uh, one of those Western-style pi- pistols from what we understand. And, uh, you know, I don't know why. Yeah, I don't understand. What, what is a live round? Why would that even be on a set? That's That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's just like asking for trouble. They had some kind of an incident, I heard, uh, days before, but they didn't do any remedial action like, you know, gun safety training and so forth. I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. It'll all come out. Anyway, you ready to go? Yeah, go ahead. I'll put this up on screen. Okay. Yes, well, imagine William Tell. Were he not such a wonderful shot? Now imagine Alec Baldwin holding a hot pistol after a murderous shot. What excuses could be given to let an actor be forgiven? Imagine William Burroughs shooting a highball from the top of his wife's head, shooting too low, leaving her dead. Good thing it was Mexico so he could be brought out since his family had money to money flood a drought. Oh, that that's really interesting. Um, huh. I'll have to, I'll have to look up the, the background that you're referencing there, because I don't know much about it. Yeah, William Burroughs was at a party. Everybody was drinking, of course. He was very fond of guns. Mm-hmm. He put a highball on top of his wife's head, and then he shot at, the highball and he hit his wife right in the forehead and oh my gosh her. wow i had no idea how did i not know that that's wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it was in mexico and he was brought out and he was never criminally punished they got him out oh wow 
You know, wow. I think he was arrested, but they got him out. Mm-hmm. The family. Oh, interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, it's always interesting what you have to share. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Tim. Bye bye now. Yep. Good night. Okay, that was Joseph Nolan with William. Imagine William Tell, Alec Baldwin, William Burroughs. Interesting. And now we have, um, as, as long as Richard's still here, and then we, we'll do Richard Westheimer, and we'll do uh, Julian Matthews. And then I'll do the Saiku, and I think that'll be the end of the show for today. Hey, Richard. Good to see you again. You're still here. Um, I'm still here. I love <laughs> listening to the open mic. It's... Uh... And there have been some great ones. I'm almost embarrassed with mine after after those ones. Yeah, the, the ballads ones. are coming out well. I had I struggled. I mean, I've been just not having time. I, I always every week I've started a poem, and I'm like, you know, a couple stanzas in, and I just don't want to share dreck. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I happen to have one in the can, mm-hmm. so I cheated. And- <laughs> Pull, pull, pull one up from the past. Uh, That's that, good. So, so that what, was pretty strict ballad. So what is this one about? Um, it's, sort, it's sort of a, a telling poem about uh, somebody asked me once if I'd put in my garden. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's really not the way it works. It's like, <laughs> it's like the garden sort of like exists in me. So I, I wrote this. Um, and I have a question for you. Sure. Mm-hmm. Would you be okay if I sang it? Yeah, yeah, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a little performative for uh, page poetry, but yeah, um, that and it's good. a different, you, it's a different you melody. A pick up time. a guitar you got behind you? Uh, no, no, no. I, that that would be too much. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Go ahead. I'd love to hear this. Okay. I wish I could sing. That's one of the many things that I wish I could do. Well, I pretend. I pretend. And this late at night. And uh, but it's called a madrigal of signs and wonders. And I'll tell you, the tune is different every time I sing it. So <laughs> uh, you want you want pick up a thread here. Okay, great. Let me get a note here. Have you yet put in your garden, my old friend says to me. I says I, I have indeed, and more I says to he. The better question you may ask, and more I says to he. To know me well, you'd ask me, friend, if the garden's put in me. For I, says I, am all the more for what's proclaimed in me. Yes, I'm put in with signs and wonder of soil-bound mystery. I'm put in, too, with humble hope that what I feed feeds me. Food, of course, and gratitude that it will work in me. From digging past years in the earth, it plants in me the seeds of memory and poems and dreams it cultivates in me. Have you yet put in your garden, my old friend says to me. I says I, I have indeed, and the garden's put in me. Oh, that was just wonderful. I need a need like an applause button, um, Richard. Yeah, that, that's the problem with singing is it, <laughs> it evokes that sort of different reaction. 
but it's a poem. I just happened to sing it. Yeah, yeah, that that just takes you back hearing it as a ballad. It's such a great, cool uh, addition to the ballad prompt open mic to to actually hear one song because that that's what poetry comes from is is the troubadours and singing ballads like that, and it really brings it back. And that was a great that the movement that poem was just terrific. I love it. Oh, thanks, and it reminds me of one thing I forgot to say earlier, which is the root for verse in universe is the same as in chorus hmm. for singing. I, I didn't know it's that. It's part of a song that comes around. Oh, you know? interesting. Wow, that's really cool to hear. Yeah, I didn't know that. So here we are. Yeah, th- there's a magical st- thing about poetry, and I'm, I'm glad we get to do do this every every week. Thanks, Richard. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Tim. Yep, Bye-bye. Bye. Richard Westheimer with a, a madrigal of signs and wonder. And um, now let's go to Julian Matthews. He'll close out the show with another ballad. You guys are really coming through with the ballads, I have to say. Julian, hello. How you doing? Hi. How do I follow that? <laughs> well, you have to sing. And I think you have to provide a musical accompaniment to now to, to top it. <laughs> no way. Bravo, Richard. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so what was your ballad that you wanted to share? So it's called, uh, it's kind of an echo of uh, what Nevadita did earlier, Ballad by the Beach. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's called Selfishy. Shall I, shall I just read it? Yeah, go ahead. I have it up. Selfishy, the ballad of Lily and Willie. Young Miss Lily lived by the sea, but she wished to be free. She couldn't see herself sell seashells by the seashore, nor shellfish, nor smelly fishy. So she hooked up with a salty salesman named Willie and moved to the chilly city, spent most of her days doing Willie for Nilly, with so much time to Philly. One day, said Willie, I liked your selfie. Really, sweetie, said Lily to Willie. Do you think I could sell my selfie? Would people pay a fee of a selfie of me? Do you think I could be a somebody? Yes, lied he. Sold was she. Now she sells selfies by the selfie store. But the selfies she sells are surely shells of her true self. So if she sells selfies of her untrue self by the selfie store, I'm sure her selfies are fishy. <laughs> he thinks they stink. Silly Willie. He makes Lily illy. She so misses the sea. <laughs> that was great. That was really funny. Um, selfishy, the ballad of Lily and Willie. And I was wondering if you were going there, and then you did. It was like the funniest part about it. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Julian. Thank you. Yeah, have a good night. Good night. Julian Matthews with Selfishy, the ballad of Lily and Willie. That's a fun open line poem to end on. Really great poems overall on the open mic. Thanks, everybody, for sharing these wonderful things. And, um, now let's do the quick the uh, the the what was it the psyku, the psyku this week was here. This is based on this article um, by it's out of the Illinois University of Illinois, and these uh, here it is these. Oops. 
Um, scientists look beyond the individual brain to study the collective mind. And here these the scientists have a book and a paper that just came out arguing for the fact that, that the whole neuroscience as a, as a field of science overlooks the, um, the collective way that our brains actually work. Like we, we, we're obsessed with asking people to do things in an MRI, MRI machine. And, uh, and, and studying them as individuals. But really, we outsource so much to the external world. Uh, you know, I'm, I have a terrible memory, famously. I mean, I just had the worst memory in the world. And um, even in, like, high school, I would have to, my best friend, I would outsource memory to him. And I would say, um, you know, what, what class do I have next period? I can't remember, even though I've been doing it my whole life. And uh, things like that. And but we just outsource our thinking, our you know, to experts and in facts to Google, and there's just a there's a way that we don't actually think as individuals. We're a collective network of of nodes um, with brains that work on their own independently, but then are also tuned into this big network that society is. And and this paper was arguing for um, ways in which we could account for that because it's a huge missing um, hole in in neuroscience right now. So anyway, that is the background for this paper I was reading. And the Psyku was uh, right here. Summer Breeze, I outsource my thinking to Facebook. Summer Breeze, I outsource my thinking to Facebook. That is your Psyku for today. And as I mentioned before, the prompt for uh, this week is to write a spooky poem for Halloween. And once again, the show is going to be um, a day earlier, the regular time, but on Saturday instead of Sunday, so that it won't interfere with any like holiday Halloween stuff that you have going on. Um, it'll be a way to kick off Halloween. And the guest, like we mentioned, is going to be Ernest Hilbert in his super spooky, creepy book, Caligulan. Uh, so he'll be reading poems from that book. We'll be sharing other poems on the open lines and trying to find as many creepy poems as we can. I'll try to actually write a, a poem for the open lines and, and make it be creepy. Um, and that is going to be Rattlecast number 116, Ernest Hilbert, um, Saturday, October 30th, the day before Halloween, Halloween Eve, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. And I hope to see you then. Hope you have a great rest of your week. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. Don't forget to click the like button and comment. And, well, not comment, but uh, subscribe and all that stuff. Have a good week. I will see you later. Bye.